how many times do you have to be told? You ever had your parents say that to you? How many times do you have to be told? Um, I had to get told a lot, I think. Uh, I think I might have shared this before, but when I was 16, I got tricked into unknowingly letting off a stink bomb in chemistry lab at school. And uh, while the other boys in class were saying, oh, it stinks, you know, and they were attributing the smell to, let's say, natural causes, um, my teacher was not duped at all. He was straight onto it. And he said, who's been mixing chemicals in my lab? And uh, now a quick confession right then and there would have saved me a lot of pain. But I stayed silent. And so then he asked the same question again. And I didn't learn my lesson and I stayed silent. And then he went to the fume cupboard, if you're familiar with Chem Labs, he went to the fume cupboard and checked all the lids on the bottles there just to make sure that there wasn't something that was being spilled. Again, I was silent. Then he went and checked the lab next door. Like, you could just picture the trouble building up as he does all of this. Checked the lab next door. And again, I was silent. My friend and I had multiple opportunities to fess up about this. It was very obvious from the very beginning that we were going to get caught and it was only going to get worse the longer and longer we held out. And it did get worse. Um, Because it turns out that a stink bomb is made of hydrogen sulphide, which is actually a poisonous gas. It's dangerous. And I was fortunate not to get suspended or expelled once we eventually did say, oh, well, actually, it was a really lame excuse. My friend said, oh, I let one off earlier in the day, you know, like the lame sort of excuse. But we got caught. But we were always going to get caught. Do you know that the human heart often has this stubbornness? We can be extremely slow to admit fault and we're quick to point the fingers at others and find reasons why to justify what we've done. And we can be extremely slow to pick up signals that judgment might be coming and we should probably deal with this now. But here's a truth that we should be very, very thankful for right off the top. And that is we might be slow to get our acts together, but thankfully God is also slow. He is slow to anger. And we should be very thankful to that. Now, today's passage is one of the more threatening in the book of Revelation. I'm not going to pretend this is not an easy passage. This is hard to get your head around. And it's full of genuinely terrifying imagery. It's one of the reasons I want you to have your Bible open in front of you. And yet it might surprise you that as we look through this and we talk about the horrors that are in it, ultimately chapters 8 to 11 testify to God's grace even more than they testify to His wrath. Now, the passage begins with an ending of the previous series of, previous cycle of seven seals that we saw last week. Now, what we saw last week was God's judgment beginning and his salvation beginning, really, as he lets humanity off the leash to do, to inflict warfare and suffering on one another. Those who suffered because of their testimony to Jesus, we're told, God keeps them safe. They're given the blessing of rest in his very presence. But those who have been the ones that have been afflicting God's people all the way along, they're hiding themselves in terror at the wrath of the Lamb. But before we get to the seventh seal and it opening, we get this pause. Do you remember this last week? The final judgment, we're told, is being held back. And it's not going to fall until God has gathered all of those that are his. And remember, we got that picture of a great multitude of people from every nation and tribe and language. 
people who'd been cleansed, people who had been given victory because of their faith in Jesus Christ who died for them. And it's only then, it's only after all of that, that the Lamb opens up the seventh seal. And that's actually where our passage begins today, with the opening of the seventh seal. Look at verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and the seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. And the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. So when that seventh seal is cracked open, what we're expecting given the previous six is absolute devastation. All you know, those angels that were holding back the winds from sweeping across the earth, we're expecting them to be let loose. But what we get instead is the opposite. We actually get worshipful silence. Did you notice that? Seven trumpets silently then get given to seven different angels. And in the meantime, pleasing incense... The prayers of all God's people are offered up to God. It's, it's, a, it's a picture of quiet, serene worship. After the fifth seal was broken, the martyrs, you remember, underneath the altar cried out, how long, O Lord, before you avenge us? How long before you deal with all of the evil that we see around us? Well, now that the whole multitude's been gathered, it appears that that same prayer is being offered up by everybody and God is right ready to act. He's ready to avenge them. And it's time for judgment to fall. And the solemn quiet, just that short period of quiet, suddenly ends. Look at verse 5. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and earthquake. Like there's quiet and then you get this boom and this smashing of fire from the altar on the earth. It's terrifying. Now we're going to cover four chapters today. They all go together. So you kind of got to look at the lot. They're all the seven trumpets. And so in order to cover them, we're not going to be able to dive into the details that we might otherwise like to do. So do make sure you've got your Bible open. But as you can see, there should be a slide that comes up on the screen. What you'll find is that the seven trumpets follow the same pattern as the seven seals that we saw last week. You get a group of four, then a group of two, then you get this pause, and then you get the seventh. And you can see how they sort of parallel each other. But you'll also see, if you look on there, that there's a bit of an amplification. It gets bigger the second time around. So while the seal judgments impact about a quarter of the earth, the trumpet judgments impact a third. For those who are mathematically impaired, a third is more than a quarter. And so that means more people, right? And while the seals were predominantly human-caused afflictions, the trumpets are a bit different. They're more cosmic in nature. They're, they take on the likeness of plagues that impact the physical world and the spiritual world. But there's another important thing to note about the next cycle of judgment. See, these cycles of judgment while they are one after another in the book of Revelation, they don't take place historically in sequence, right? They're kind of like, and, and Josh was talking about this in our church this morning, they're kind of like different camera angles on the same event. Right? They're different perspectives on the same period of time. And that is human history in between Jesus Christ's ascension to the right hand of God after his resurrection 
and his return. They're all looking at the same period of time. And we're going to see the same thing when we get to the cycle of the bowl judgments later on in Revelation. So what you get is there is a sense of building intensity, but there is overlap. They're dealing with the same territory. They're like different lenses through which we understand world's events as we see them go past over history. The seals were God's judging the violence of human empire by human means. But the trumpets show God judging the wickedness of humanity by natural and supernatural means. Well, the events that we are looking at today are not begun by the quiet cracking of a seal like last week's, but by the sound of a trumpet blown by a mighty angel. Now, when we think of trumpets, we think of orchestras, we think of bands, we think of fanfares, perhaps at a coronation, something that sounds a bit like this. Trumpets, right? You can imagine them holding them out and they've got some sort of royal thing draped off them and everyone's going, or the ending of some sort of corny American movie, all right? But you hear that sound and you think happy days, you think triumph, you think celebrations, right? But when the ancient world thought about trumpets, it was very different, okay? The Romans, when they heard trumpets, it signalled war. And for Jews, because of prophetic messages, if you take notes, like Joel chapter 2, read Joel chapter 2 when you get home, and Zephaniah chapter 1, a trumpet signalled the coming of the great and terrible day of God's wrath. Bit of a different picture. And so for both Romans and Jews, whoever was reading this in its original context, a trumpet sound is more like one of these. Yeah. Slightly different emotional response. Makes you feel like there should be some place you should be running to, right? That is the way it is in the book of Revelation. When we hear about these seven trumpets, think of that. Think of how you feel when that's being sounded. That's the tone, right? So perhaps the best way of thinking about these seven trumpets is thinking of seven sirens. The sound of God's coming judgment on human wickedness. It's the kind of sound that doesn't say, oh, hang around, just see what happens. This is really interesting. Something dramatic is going to happen. No, this says, you hear that tune and you go, I'm running. I'm going for safety. I'm running to higher ground. I'm going to where I can be protected. Well, there's no mucking around with the first four trumpets. Let's have a look at them. The language draws heavily on what we looked at last term in the book of Exodus, right, with the plagues upon Egypt. You'll hear echoes of it as you listen. But it also draws on Roman mythologies and it sort of mixes them together. These trumpets or sirens, as we're thinking about them, signal danger and judgment, no matter what your background was. Well, the first trumpet calls down a terrifying hail of fire and blood that scorches a third of the earth. The second trumpet sounds as a uh, and a fiery mountain, picture this, a fiery mountain is cast violently into the sea and it turns the sea to blood. And just as Moses, remember um, when we were looking at Exodus, as Moses turned the waters um, of Egypt to blood in Exodus, and he does the same thing here, but a third of the sea creatures and a third of the ships that sail across the sea are destroyed. And then the third trumpet sounds and this flaming star that's called wormwood, which was a substance that made things bitter, um, is falls to earth and it poisons the springs and the rivers. 
uh, it's like a reversal of what we heard Moses do um, when, when, he, when he made bitter water, you remember that? The waters of Mara, the bitter waters, he made them sweet and drinkable. And now we're getting the reversal in judgment. God is turning the water the other way round and people are dying because the water is poisoned. And then after the fourth trumpet, the sky is affected so that a third of all light turns to darkness and those very things that give beauty in the sky turn dark and shaded. Now, three key things to notice here. First, notice how prominent fire is in these images. Now, remember what the signal was for all of these trumpets to be sounded, all right? It was an angel throwing down a censer that was filled with fire from the altar before the throne of God. In other words, this is seriously holy fire, all right? Fire in much of the Scriptures is a purifying element. It's not... A, a, a bad thing that just sort of burns up. It's, it's purifying, it's cleansing. And there is this symbolic cleansing that goes on with these judgments. That's what these things deserve. But what is being afflicted with these first four judgment things is not people, did you notice that? It's, it's creation itself. It's a creation that's been corrupted by human sin. And so what God made so orderly, what God made to work so perfectly and that he called so good back in Genesis chapter 1 is now being struck by chaotic forces that, you know, blood and hail, those things don't go together and yet all of these things are happening, this chaos is taking place as if the world is under a curse, which it is. Second, the things that are struck are sources of life that people take for granted the trees and the fields that provide fruit and grazing for animals and grain, the sea that provides fish and over which all commerce sort of happened as people traded things, um, rivers and springs that provide water for our consumption, the sources of light in the sky that guide our paths both a day and night. See, what human idolatry has done that's being judged is takes what God provides for our good and then gives that honour and glory, give glory and honour to created things rather than the one who created them. And so these tastes of his wrath in these four trumpets are reminders that the sorts of things that are given for us for our good can also be taken away. And third, like we saw last week with the seals, that it's important to note that judgments are only partial. A third, yes, that is more than a quarter, but it is still only a third. Two-thirds of the land and the sea and the rivers and the springs and the sky escape. These are trumpet warnings. These are sirens blaring that signal some sort of great judgment that is to come, but they are not the final judgment themselves. And yet the message must be heard. If these terrors, a third of the earth, right? If these terrors are just the sirens... You do not want to see what comes next. You do not want to face the full force of God's judgment if these are just the warning shots. The first four trumpets show us that natural disasters, though, are not merely natural. They, like the sufferings of human conquests with the seals that we saw last week, are warning signs of God's coming judgment against sin. And their limited nature is actually a mercy 
that shouldn't be taken for granted. It shouldn't be despised, but it should be taken as a warning and going, right, got the message, I'm going to now act. That's what it should be doing. Because this is what Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke when a similar thing was posed to him. Now, there was some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now listen to the parable he tells you straight afterwards. Then he told this parable... A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard and he went to look for fruit on it but did not find any. And so he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming back to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilise it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. It's kind of signal there is a danger to hearing warning after warning and then not doing anything about it. Well, John's vision then gets drawn upwards, okay? And he sees an eagle soaring. Now, eagles, as you can picture it, they see everything that's going underneath them. But here's the thing about the eagle is that for Greeks and Romans, the eagle was often regarded as a messenger from the gods. So like in Jewish Um, literature, angels were messengers from the gods. In Greek and Roman stuff, often it was eagles that did this. And this eagle gives an ominous message. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. I was just saying, if if the first four weren't bad enough, the next three get a special warning. Three more trumpets that are giving three more woes. You remember, you know, have you ever heard the phrase, woe is me? We don't tend to use the word woe a lot. But woe says, you might go, oh crap. All right, perhaps that's the equivalent of woe. Um, Disaster is falling on me. Three causes for crying out in lament. But now the blows fall not on creation, but they now start to fall on people. And the first woe is trumpet five. And it introduces us to another star that's fallen from the sky, but this star, we're told, is in fact an angel. And the angel is sent to, as Russell Crowe says in Gladiator, unleash hell. And that's really what happens. Now, we've already seen with the four horsemen that God in his judgment is prepared at times to partially release the normal restraints he places on sinful excess, right? And so that's what happens here. Again, we uh, take the general peace and security that God gives us in the day-to-day, we can often take it so much for granted. And, you know, pictures like this that we got last week and this week in Revelation, kind of a bit of a window. That, so we have got no realisation just how much God is at work in the day-to-day holding back the forces of evil. Evil that is within ourselves, within people, but also, as this shows, how much he normally holds back forces of evil in the spiritual realm that he could 
should he choose to, let loose. Well, verses 1 to 11 in chapter... Verses 1 to 11 of chapter 9, they paint us a picture that comes pretty much out of a horror movie. The already very strange and slightly loopy apocalyptic imagery of Revelation now goes into overdrive, right? The angel is given keys to the shaft of the abyss, right? Now, the abyss was symbolically the place where evil spiritual forces are being confined, they're being imprisoned kind of thing. And he's being given a key to open it like Pandora's box, where everything bad comes out. And smoke pours upwards like the smoke of a furnace. Now, just that imagery tells you nothing good is going to happen straight after this, is it? Nothing good is coming out of this pit. And some really freaky demonic locusts pour out of it. Now, all you need, I think, is the word demonic locust, and that's kind of got enough going toward it. But this is really on top, over the top. Swarms of demonic locusts is terrifying enough, but these locusts look like battle horses. They're wearing crowns. They've got men's faces, women's hair, tails like scorpions, lion's teeth, the breastplates of warriors, and the sound of their beating wings is like the deafening thunder of chariots riding into war. This really is the stuff of nightmares because none of these combinations could ever work in the real world. But it's the sort of stuff that will get you waking up at night and going, I don't think I want to go to sleep for a little bit. Now, some of these aspects, however, are quite familiar. So the beasts with human faces, that's actually reminiscent of many of the idols that pagan religions worship. You can go to museums, you can see statues of beasts with faces like people. This is, in a sense, a picture of people getting afflicted by their own gods that they're worshipping. And other aspects just look plain wrong. Now, I'm just going to fix this up because this is drifting in all different directions. I think when it starts... Oh, wow. When it starts tickling my chin, I think it's probably not in the right spot. Okay. But other aspects of these beings looks just wrong, right? What I mean by that is, unlike the somewhat majestic living beings, those creatures that stood before the throne of God, that were slightly weird, but they were kind of majestic, um, these are visually jarring, right? They're disordered. They're twisted. Something about the demonic realm is inherently a mismatch, kind of like the product of a kid who gets given a Lego thing and then throws away the instructions and then just builds something weird that comes out of their own imagination where all the colours are messed up and it's pointing in different directions and it's got absolutely no functionality, right? That's kind of what we're seeing with these creatures because that's what sin does. See, sin takes things and distorts them into the images that come from our own desires and our wills. Evil is a distortion, it's a corruption. And so these demonic beings appear like that. And at the end of John's description, we're told that they're led by a demonic being whose name means destroyer. And this is almost certainly a reference to Satan himself. But the judgment is not merely that they're let loose, it's what they're given permission to do. Verse 4, not to attack plants, that's what locusts normally do, but to torment those who have refused to acknowledge God. Now, I want you to notice detail verse 4, because that's really important. Because sometimes when we think of the spiritual realm, sometimes it can freak you out. 
But what you need to see here is that God's people, those who have the Spirit of God dwelling in them, are protected by God from spiritual forces of evil. No demon can affect you if you have God himself dwelling among you. You are safe. But that is not the case for the world that is still under their influence. And the people you know that they're still under their influence, they're vulnerable. And the five months here suggests it's a limited time, but it's long enough. It's long enough for it to be horrible. But just like last week, this is not God making demonic agents doing anything that's not against their nature. Rather, they're given limited freedom to do what is in their nature to do. And those who have followed their lead and influence, the ones who have said, hey, yeah, we like what the lies that we hear from them, whether that's knowingly or unknowingly, whether they followed them into un- to godlessness or idolatry or violence or, or immorality, they will encounter their true nature and they will suffer from their destructive malice. Evil is no friend and wickedness is its own punishment. Paul Barnett, one commentator on Revelation, captures the message of this judgment well when he writes this. When men and women deliberately turn their backs on God and walk towards Satan, they place themselves in the hands of a tormentor, not a friend. So, you know, popular music can easily glamorise the occult. You know, you might think of Marilyn Manson and ones like that where this is really cool and really edgy. ACDC might sing a song of going on a highway to hell like it's a fun option that's much more interesting and party than any more conservative one or boring Christian one. Um, And you know that the slogan of modern Satanism is this, do what thou wilt. That's the big first of the Ten Commandments in, in Satanism. And it tries to suggest that Satan is actually not on about evil, he's not on about sacrificing goats and virgins and all those sorts of things. It's rather about just freeing people to go do what you want to do and don't be unnecessarily restricted by all of that horrible religion stuff. That's really what Satanism is about. That is a lie. Satan hates humanity because God loves humanity. And Satan hates God. And there is no peace when you follow Satan's lead. God is the creator. Satan is at his very heart a destroyer and he will destroy you in a heartbeat. And so to side with him is folly. But for all of his hate, he's not sovereign, but God is. Though here God lets the demonic act according to their nature, they're still restricted. It's only for a time. And it's only to give a taste of judgment so that people would respond and repent from it. Thank the Lord that he actually limits the destructive designs of evil. Because you know what? If he didn't, this world would literally be a nightmare. And so in chapter 9, verses 13 to 19, we go to the second woe. And the sixth trumpet sounds. And again, we're shown agents that God has been holding back. And then he lets them loose. So like with the four horsemen... Warfare is now in view and like with the fifth trumpet, these agents of war seem to have a demonic backing. Look at verse 14. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now these angels are not God's angels, they've been bound by him, right? They've been restrained by him and their location at the river Euphrates 
means that if you're a first century reader, that's right in the heart of the Parthian Empire. And they were Rome's terrifying enemies to the east. They had not conquered. But if you know your Old Testament, it's also the location of the ancient enemies of Israel. Right? The Assyrians, the Babylonians whose armies God used to sweep down in judgment upon his own idolatrous people. And they're pictured as riding horses that resemble the terrifying chimera of Greek and Roman mythology. And they sweep across the world and a third of humanity is slain in their wake. This is bloody and horrible. But again, notice God's sovereignty. He'd been holding them back. And as we read in verse 15, he then releases them only at the very moment that suited his purposes of judgment and no sooner and no later. And again, the damage, though it's terrible, it's limited. It's one-third, two-thirds remain. You know, we've seen these sorts of things play out over history many times over the last 2,000 years. The deadly hordes of war have been seen a number of times, whether you think about the barbarian invasions that ended the Western Roman Empire and destroyed the cities, the Viking raids of the 8th and 9th century that led to more than two centuries of terror and rape and pillage and murder, the Mongol hordes that brought untold death and destruction across Europe and Asia in the 13th to 15th centuries, massacring literally whole cities of 100,000 people, killing Everyone, and not with a machine gun, with swords. So the streets ran with blood. The Mongol hordes also ushered in the Great Black Death that killed a third of Europe. And of course, there's the horrors of Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan that they afflicted when they launched their invasions across the world a mere 70 years ago. We see these things play out. They're sirens. Reminders of a of a horrendous judgment to come, calls to repent and to flee. And so there we have six trumpets, six sirens, crying out their deafening warnings, one after the other after the other, and yet, guess what? No one listened. No one heeded them. They felt their effects, but they did not respond as they should. Look at verse 20 of 9. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They still did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. And nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. And what you've got here is John giving a bit of an editorial. This is him commenting on his own vision. After all these warnings, he's stunned because people still don't change. They should have read the signs, heard the sirens and fled, but they didn't. That's why he twice tells us that they didn't repent. And the implication is, well, they should have. They never asked themselves, why is this happening? Instead of humbling themselves and seeking after God in his mercy, they persist in their false worship, their idolatry, their immorality. They just kept doing what they were always doing, as if none of these things signalled anything. But isn't that the human way, don't you think? You've seen that. Maybe you've lived that. You know, when faced with devastating world events, we point the finger everywhere else. This system is at fault. That institution is at fault. That culture over there, them, they're the ones who are at fault. Political parties are at fault. Other people, even God is to blame. 
but we rarely look within. We rarely contemplate that there might be a spiritual cause and that maybe we might be a part of that and we rarely change our own ways. So let me ask, let's pause and let's ask, six sirens, well, what should happen now? How many times does humanity have to be told before judgment, final judgment, is just and right and 100% appropriate? I mean, if no one pays attention to the alarm that you keep sounding, what tends to happen? Well, they get hit by whatever's coming, don't they? You ignore the warning? Well, that's on you, right? You face the consequences. But you know what's amazing is that what we see after this is that people don't. They don't face the full wrath of God's judgment. At least not yet. See, it's just like after the sixth seal that left the rulers standing there going, who can stand before the wrath of the one who sits upon the throne and the Lamb? And we saw a picture of the angels holding back those four winds of judgment. Well, there is another pause now, another delay. Back during the seals, it was to give God time to seal all of those who belong to him. And now the pause gives time for the church to bear witness to the world, to tell the world why the things are the way they are, to tell the world of the God that they're rejecting, to tell the world about the Saviour that can save them from all of this and to call people to repent. God's saying, I'm going to press pause. I'm not going to drop the final judgment. I'm going to give people time. Now, we don't have time, speaking of it, to look at the next chapter and a half in detail. I'm going to quickly summarise the great pause for you. First of all, another mighty angel appears in chapter 10. And his appearance makes it clear he's been right in the throne room of God. And his strides stands astride both land and sea. Now the Romans in their boasting said, we are the ones who control the sea, we are the ones who control the land. God is saying, no you don't. I, I can send an angel and he's going to stand on both of them at the same time. Um, and, but what he's doing is he's holding an open scroll. Now do you remember a scroll in Revelation? Last week, right? And what happened to the scroll? Seal, 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 seal. Seventh seal is opened. Guess what that makes the scroll? Opened. This is that scroll, okay? Um, and he promises now that the scroll has been opened, that there will be no more delay. That when the seventh trumpet sounds, God's mystery is going to be accomplished. His work of salvation. But then what he does is something interesting. He gives the scroll to John and he says, eat it. Now this sounds weird. It is weird. But it's drawing on the book of Ezekiel, where the prophet Ezekiel was told to do the same thing hundreds of years earlier when he was there to preach to wayward Israel. Now, what we're told is that this, this scroll will taste sweet, but when it gets to his stomach, it's going to turn sour. And what that's saying is that the word that it contains is good. Everything that is on it is good and it tastes right on the tongue, the thing that speaks. But when it's digested... People will reject it like a stomach. So it's kind of like people will respond to the word not the way it was meant to be. And yet he's told, John, do it anyway. Even if people ignore you, do it anyway. Prophesy again. Go into the world, prophesy again. Give them another chance. Plead with them another time. 
See how I'm saying, said earlier? This is, you see God's amazing grace. The saints underneath the altar are saying, how long, oh Lord, can you judge it? Can you get rid of it? Can you reap your vengeance, please? Because this sucks. And God is going, just give me a moment longer. Give them one more chance. Give them one more chance. And then God appoints two witnesses. They're clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth is the garment of repentance. It's what you wore when you were saying, I am sorry. Two witnesses. Because the testimony of two witnesses is valid. It proves the truth of what they're saying. And the reference to the two olive trees relates to the message that we read from Zechariah chapter 4. Okay, these are going to be God's spirit-anointed and empowered messengers into the world. And the two lampstands, well, if you've been looking at Revelation for the last few weeks, you know what a lampstand means, doesn't it? Churches. Lampstands are churches. So in other words, before the end, before God's final judgment lands, God is going to send his churches out, the same ones that he was gathering in the seals, he's going to send out to bear witness to Jesus, to call the world to repentance. So they got a message that it can accompany all of those signs. And he's going to empower his church and the world is going to oppose it just as these witnesses are opposed in chapter 11. And the world's going to think that it's destroyed God's witnesses and destroyed the church and it's going to congratulate itself for having done so and this has happened many times over history but the God who raises the dead is going to raise his people, vindicate them and avenge them and they can keep preaching. And only after the church has testified to Jesus, only after that, Only after it has called the world to repent is the final woe, the seventh trumpet, going to be sounded. And that's what happens in chapter 11, verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. And so just like with the breaking of the seventh seal, We are taken now into the throne room of God at the playing of the seventh trumpet. And what do we see? Just like the seventh seal, we see worship. We see the saints worshipping. But this worship is focused now on the fact that at last the kingdom of our Lord and the Messiah has been established. This is the moment all history has been waiting for. This is the moment that you and I are going to be rejoicing at when we get there. They're going to go, great, the lamb wins, right? But, do you remember what the eagle said? Woe, woe, woe. The third trumpet is a woe. How is this a woe? We're going, this is great. The kingdom of God is established. How is this proclamation a siren that sounds out across the world? Because of what you read in verse 18. The time has come for judging the dead. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small. That's great, but look at the next verse. And for destroying those who destroy the earth. There's your woe. The time for salvation for God's people is also the time that the destroyers are destroyed and the enemies of God face their final judgment. And that is what we're going to see take place over the rest of the book of Revelation. So on the one hand... Revelation 8 to 11 seems to be one long and terrifying testimony to God's judgment on a hard-hearted world, doesn't it? It's pretty heavy. 
And on one level it is, all right? You combine it with the cycle of the seven seals, Revelation shows us that the sufferings of the world, they're not just random hardships that life throws at you, you know, you just got to suck up. They're foretastes of judgment allowed by the God that we've rejected and ignored and the call for repentance and action. That's the way you're meant to read those signs. But at a more significant level, these foretastes of judgment, these trumpets, these sirens signalling God's coming wrath point more, as I said, all along to his graciousness, to his mercy. And you know why they point to that? Because repentance is still an option. Repentance, amazingly, is still an option. God sounds those warning sirens so the people will listen to them and they'll take the warning and they'll act. Because though justice would have God wipe out all evil, his mercy says, no, no, not yet, not yet. Not now. Let me sound another siren. Let me give another warning. Let me present another opportunity. 2,000 years after John wrote this, he's still offering us a chance. Now, you might be somebody who's heard the gospel of Jesus many times. Look at the world around you. Look at the wars Look at the horrors. Look at the way people treat each other. Look at the things that can only really be described as evil. And you think, what what do you think God's going to do with that? What do you think God's going to do with those that treat him like he's a nobody, like he's not the creator, that will worship other things, anything but him? There's sirens going on all over the place. If you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus... Listen to the siren. How many times do you need to hear the call to stop and to turn around, repent and go back to God? If you're sitting here tonight and you're going, yeah, lots actually, and I've never done it, don't you think you should? How many times do you think you need to hear it? Because the longer you hear it, the longer you can also turn deaf to it. Don't let that be you. There is a beautiful, magnificent future of glory. All you've got to do is say, I'm sorry, I've been doing the wrong thing. Do that tonight. Stop turning a deaf ear to those sirens and go, Jesus, you are gracious. Thank you. You know, it's also a tragic irony that some use God's allowing of suffering as if it's a proof against his existence or against his goodness. Oh, well, if there's a good and all-powerful God, how does he let suffering happen in the world? Gotcha. Really? In reality, those very things are proofs of both his sovereignty and his goodness. Because if God ended all suffering, that would mean bringing down the curtain on sinful humanity and every single member of it. And that's it. That's bad. The very complaint that sort of says, well, God should be giving me this wonderful cruisy life where everything is served up to me on a platter and I shouldn't have anything bad go wrong with me and no one else should either, even though I treat him like dirt as if he doesn't exist. 
It's testimony to the very thing that we see humanity doing in Revelation 8 to 11. Stubborn human hearts that no matter what, refuse to repent and refuse to stop doing what we want to do and acknowledge God. It is actually the goodness and grace of God that means he persists in giving us the opportunity to repent and that means that suffering's still got to be happening because the day he stops it, he really stops it. But instead, humanity would rather double down on our rebellion and resent him even if it costs us everything. That's just foolish. See, humanity's sin is on them. Humanity's refusal to repent is on them. But I want to say this. Their ignorance about Jesus, their ignorance about the God that they've been rejecting, well, that's our responsibility to dispel, isn't it? That's what God has sent his church out to do. To say, let me give you the interpretation of what you see out there. There is a God you've rejected and you need to return to him. That is the mission of the church. And that's what we see in Revelation. And so even as we lament the wickedness of this world and even as we cry out to God as we suffer, how long, O Lord, when are you going to bring it, when are you going to end it all? The answer, because of his mercy to the undeserving and as yet unrepentant, is what we heard last week, just a little while longer. Wait, just a little while longer. Let me finish with 2 Peter chapter 3. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God's judgment is real and it's big, but his mercy is more. And that's what we're going to sing about now.